But our careful planning and attempts to do the right thing for my dying father devolved into an unthinkable end of life ordeal. And basically it put us in the crosshairs of healthcare and legal systems that often thwart people's wishes instead of honoring them. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out, and you can find out more about her on judybanker.com. Barbara Mancini is the author of Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath, which is a cautionary tale for all of us. She talks about the power and the politics around end-of-life wishes and, in general, death and dying and who gets to decide what happens when we are dying. We talk about the medical system. We talk about the criminal system. And it is just a riveting story. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, as usual, I've got Sparky, my Jack Russell Terrier, right by my side. So let's begin. We have a great interview for you today. Actually, it's a cautionary tale, and it's a fascinating story. We're going to be talking to Barbara Mancini, and she was arrested and prosecuted in Pennsylvania on the charge of aiding the attempted suicide of her dying 93-year-old father after handing him his prescribed morphine. A hospice nurse and police authorities ignored his written advance directives, and he was hospitalized and treated in defiance of his end-of-life wishes. A year later, a judge dismissed the case against her, and her case was featured on 60 Minutes and NPR. She's traveled around the country speaking about her experience and has become a vocal advocate for honoring wishes, improving care, and expanding options at the end of life. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here today. You know, uh, we've spoken to other guests about the importance of end of life planning. It's a very important subject. But what makes this a different kind of story is that you did everything you were supposed to do. You've been trained as a nurse, you worked as a nurse, you knew exactly what to do in terms of uh, uh, end of life um Ad, ad, what would you call it? Advance elect what, what directives. Uh, directives. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And you did your due diligence. So, what went wrong? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, talking about advanced directives. You've had other guests that do that, and there's still a minority of American adults that actually go through this process. 
But we went through it. I had numerous conversations with my father, and it wasn't just a once and done conversation. He mm-hmm. appointed me as his healthcare power of attorney. He had his doc his wishes documented in a living will. But our careful planning and attempts to do the right thing for my dying father devolved into an unthinkable end of life ordeal. And basically it put us in the crosshairs of healthcare and legal systems that often thwart people's wishes instead of honoring them. Because even when you do all the right things like we did, there are other factors that can come into play that undermine this careful planning. I would say the first one is that our healthcare systems have an imperative to quote, save lives. Mm -hmm. It's very, very strong. The Hippocratic Oath seems to be uh, interpreted in that way. Well, and also when presented with someone who has a a life-threatening disorder, uh, uh, EMS, you know, emergency medical services or ERs or anybody in healthcare kind of goes into this, okay, this is what we've got to do to save this person. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the imperative that's already there. But another factor is there are people who may not agree with your values and wishes and hold positions that allow them to override them or disregard them. People in power that are able to derail the whole system. Yes. Because they don't agree, perhaps, with um, the wishes of the dying, like your dad, who was very clear that he did not want medical intervention. Yes, and and related to Mm -hmm. that, very strongly, are the politics that surround how and when we are allowed to die. And I definitely would make the analogy that end-of-life choices are as politically fraught as reproductive choices. Wow. And one other factor that comes into play here is poor quality end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that was even on my radar screen when we were talking about... um, you know, my father's end of life wishes, but that was something that played a major role in how this whole thing came down. So you were not even aware as a medical professional, which most of us are not, you were not even aware of these other forces, the political forces, some of the medical philosophy. Um, You really thought you were doing every single thing possible to allow your dad's wishes to, to come true. I thought I was, although in hindsight, my biggest regret in all this was not doing more to research hospice care. I mean, Ah. I just just assumed that the hospice provider would do what they were supposed to do. And that is a very flawed assumption to make. Now, I fully support quality hospice care. I mean, I think it's a, a wonderful benefit for people to have. But... Hospices vary very greatly in quality care. Hospice experts admit that. And I didn't know anything about what regulations hospices were supposed to follow. Um, you know, I kind of just, you know, once my dad was enrolled in a hospice care, I was like, okay, they're, they're professionals, they know what they're doing. And mm-hmm. that didn't end up being the case at all. So one of the reasons I became an advocate for better end-of-life care is to make people aware or raise awareness that you cannot assume that hospice providers are going to do 
what you pay them to do or what Medicare pays them to do. You still need to do your due diligence mm -hmm. and uh, investigate before you hand over your care. And how would you do that, Barbara? I know that you are in um, Pennsylvania. If somebody was uh, in the situation you were in, would you recommend that they Google to see what the reviews were about their local hospice? How does one sort of check out the quality of the hospice they would be um, hiring? There are a number of ways to do that. None of them are foolproof. Um, Certainly, you can Google things. There's also a tool that Medicare provides. It's called Hospice Compare. Mm -hmm. It's it's a kind of the counterpart to Nursing Home Compare. So okay. it's it's something that you can find on the web. It and uh, it's a an evaluation of hospice care. I, I find it of some limited value um, because the data on Hospice Compare is self-reported by the hospices on quality measures. Oh. So a self-report, <laughs> you have to trust that they're being completely honest. Yes. Um, mm. Recently, they've allowed some family uh, evaluations to be on there too. But again, that's, uh, again, of limited value. Self-selected. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know how many uh, hospice providers are going to be brutally honest and say, mm -hmm. we, we failed at this and that. No, they're not going to say that. I mean, let's get real. Uh, it's important to ask for recommendations if you know of someone who's had uh, a hospice provider and what kind of experience they've had with that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the most important thing is to interview pr prospective hospice providers. Ah. And I have a list of questions in, in my book. I wrote a book about my experience. It's called uh, Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath. So I, mm -hmm. I talk about hospice issues extensively in the book. And I have an appendix where you can look at questions that you should ask prospective hospice providers. Mm -hmm. And one thing I would say is any hospice that you're considering for a loved one or for yourself should be very willing to be interviewed prior to you enrolling in them. And if they are not, then to me, that's a red flag. If they mm -hmm. don't want to sit and answer your questions and there's, I, again, I have a list in the book, but there are some important questions that need to be considered. People need to know that the hospice benefit, once you're enrolled in that, that hospice is responsible for providing all care related to the terminal condition. Now, I don't know if your listeners are aware of all the nuances about hospice care, but hospice is intended to be uh, provided only for people who qualify. So this has to be someone who has a, a a terminal illness, mm -hmm. and they're likely to die within six months okay. as determined by two separate health care providers. That's the eligibility to, to enroll in hospice care. And that's a national, uh, yes. the national criteria, okay. Yes, and yeah, hospice, uh, hospices are guided by federal regulations. They're not state. It's written into the Code of Federal Regulations, and they're extensive. Um, I had no idea that that even existed, you know, before this happened to us, but I have since read the entire law. And if a hospice meets the uh, conditions for participation, they will be providing good care without question. I see. I see. So if this had happened in another jurisdiction, or you were up where I am in, in upstate New York, it's possible that this never would have happened. Am I am I understanding that correctly? 
Well, if you're referring to my arrest, um, uh, yes, yes, it, it depends on very, very much depends on where you are. Um, I include some research in my book that shows that prosecutions on assisted suicides tend to have common factors involved with them. They usually happen in rural areas or small towns, mm-hmm. with rare exceptions. Um, there's usually someone who is reporting a suspicion, someone in a position like a, a, a hospice provider or a nursing supervisor or someone in law enforcement. And the person who is charged with this kind of thing, with aiding a suicide, oftentimes is considered an outsider. So, you know, where this happened uh, with my father was in a small town called Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it's a rural county. I currently, and I, for, for three decades, I've been living in Philadelphia, which is a large urban center. And it, it's about 100 miles southeast of where my parents live. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was an outsider. So these mm-hmm. prosecutions tend to happen in more conservative, religious, political areas. I, I won't see. say it's, it's, it's 100%, but that's where they tend to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in my case, it ticked off all those boxes. And uh, what happened was, well, I'll tell you the story of what happened that day. Um, my dad was 93 years old. And he had lived a long life. He had some very uh, concerning medical conditions for a long time. He had diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney disease. He'd even had a stroke at one time, but he recovered from that. But the totality of all these conditions started to take their toll. And by the time he reached the age of 92, he felt like the quality of his life was getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, he'd been a very active, fiercely independent person. Mm. You, know? you describe him as like doing roofing. At and... the age of 90, he was <laughs> yeah, getting on up the on roof. the ladder and oh, fixing the roof. You know, it, So he was doing all kinds of active physical stuff for most of his life. Well, then it got to the point where he could no longer do that. Just to get up and walk from the living room to the kitchen had him out of breath. He had a lot of pain he had shortness of breath. So his quality of life had greatly diminished. And he discussed with his doctor and with me and my mother what his wishes and values were. He made it very clear that he didn't want to go to a hospital, that he wanted to die at home. He stopped taking all the medicines that treated all those conditions. His doctor did an evaluation, felt he was fully competent, not depressed. He had made this as a rational decision. Mm -hmm. So after all that, he enrolled in hospice care. So he was in hospice care for two weeks. He had significant pain. It was getting worse. And all he was taking for pain was the Tylenol and the ibuprofen that my parents had at home, which I thought was really um, unusual. My father had pain in the past that he'd been prescribed narcotics for. Mm -hmm. So two weeks after he's in the hospice, I called the hospice and I asked him to prescribe morphine for his pain. Mm -hmm. That's the most commonly used medicine to treat end-of-life pain. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time that I made that phone call, I didn't know that he had been prescribed that two weeks earlier and the hospice had withheld it. I didn't find that out till months later. Oh my goodness. Yes. So it had been prescribed. They didn't provide it. And um, 
you know, I, when I finally got his hospice records after my court case was in progress, I saw multiple times listed in his record that uh, nurses described him as, quote, comfortable despite pain. Now, that's a really disturbing uh, way to describe someone who's in pain. <laughs> but anyway, I'll, I'll move on from that. The day in question was February 11th. 2013. My father had fallen the day before. He was getting doses of morphine for about a week. It wasn't helping very much. He had fallen, which is not something unusual because he was falling frequently. But that night, he had the worst night he ever had. I mean, he went to bed fully clothed. He wouldn't let my mother or my brother even take off this loose button-up shirt oh. that he had on. Oh. And so I was... I went up there early the next morning to see what I could do to help. When I got there, my father asked me to hand him his pain medicine. It was the liquid morphine in a one ounce vial. It had a childproof cap on it and my mother could never open it. So she would always hand the vial to dad to open and then mm -hmm. she would measure out the dose. So I did that same routine, but before I had the measuring syringe in my hand before I could measure out the dose, he quickly drank what was left in that vial. Mm -hmm. Now, I had no idea how much was in there. It likely was a very large dose. He never said to me, oh, I'm going to do this. I can't take it anymore. I, I know he was in severe pain, mm -hmm. but he never articulated what he was going to do or why he was going to do it. And then there I was in a quandary. My mother had gone out to do some errands. What, what do I do? Because... He had told mm. me many times he didn't want to go to a hospital. Mm. I knew he mm. was suffering tremendously. So I decided that the best thing to do, the right thing to do, would be to honor his wishes. Mm -hmm. And I sat there with him. Two hours later, a hospice nurse arrived because of this fall that he had the day before. And when she came in, I told her my dad took the morphine. Mm -hmm. I didn't try to hide it. Mm -hmm. uh, when she arrived... He was very drowsy, but he was not unconscious. He was able to follow commands. He was breathing normally. He was able to respond to questions. But this hospice nurse and her supervisor insisted that he be taken to the local ER to be treated for an overdose. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew that it was exactly what he did not want to happen, so That's I resisted right. it quite strongly. And... Uh, the hospice ended up calling 911 and uh, the police arrived first and then paramedics arrived. The police ordered my father to be taken to the hospital. Police officer told me that I no longer had any say in what happened to my father and they arrested me on the spot right there it's in the just, house. It's just hard to wrap one's mind around how this must have felt for you. It was a surreal nightmare. I mean, that, it, that I can't describe it any other way. I mean, I was just in stunned disbelief. So my father gets hauled off to the hospital, and my mother followed, and uh, I was taken to the police station, and my arrest was processed. They charged me with aiding an attempted suicide. And in the state of Pennsylvania, that's a second-degree felony, and conviction can get you 10 years in prison. And all the while you're at the police station, you know your dad is in the ER. Mm -hmm. 
which is exactly what he didn't want. And I'm thinking you don't know much about what's going on there. I, I was frantic. I was absolutely frantic and distraught. And um, as I'm in the police station, I get a call on my cell phone. It was my mother. And she said to me, the, the doctor's asking if I will give consent for them to treat dad. What should I do? And I said, mom, follow his advance directive, follow his wishes. And the police officer was right next to me and he took my phone and he said, I wanna, said to my mother, let me talk to the ER doctor. And the ER doctor apparently got on the other end of the phone and I heard the police officer say, if he dies, things will go much worse for her, meaning me. Mm -hmm. So the ER doctor related that to my mother. So my elderly mother was put in this terrible position of having to choose between honoring her promise to my father. We all promised that we would follow his wishes. Mm -hmm. And they were married for 62 years. Oh, and she had to choose between him and me, mm -hmm. her daughter. Mm -hmm. So she knew that no matter what decision she made, it would hurt someone she loved. So what she ultimately did, she gave her consent for them to treat my father because she she was afraid what would happen to me. Mm -hmm. And it was an awful position for her to be oh, in. Oh my goodness. So she was there at the ER with him. I'm still in police custody and another two hours passed. My father was still breathing normally, but he was more drowsy. And the hospital gave him a dose of Narcan, which is a an opioid reversal agent right. to reverse the effects of the morphine. Yes. And he was livid, absolutely furious that they had brought him to the hospital. He pulled off the heart monitor, pulled out the IV, tried to get up and leave. He was yelling at everybody. He was, he was really, he lost his temper. He was furious and he was really afraid for me. He tried to protect me and he yelled out, don't hurt Barbara. Don't let them hurt Barbara. So he knew what had happened the entire time. But he got admitted to the hospital and he lived for five days. He developed all kinds of complications. He quickly developed pneumonia. Mm -hmm. He had a fever so high that, you know, they gave him fever reducing agents. They had to put ice packs around his body. Mm. He went into kidney failure. Uh, he went into heart failure and the, the pneumonia eventually devolved into sepsis, which is the generalized response to a, a severe infection in your body. Mm -hmm. Sepsis led to something called metabolic acidosis, which is incompatible with life. And on the fifth day, um, he died. And uh, I was prosecuted over the, the next year. I ended up paying over $100,000 in legal fees. I lost my job as a nurse. Mm. And uh, I also was placed under a, a gag order that was imposed by uh, a judge up there in the county. So I couldn't even talk about the case. I couldn't get my side of the story out while this was going on. Uh, ultimately, uh, a county judge dismissed the case against me a year later. She, she ruled that it had no merit and she actually criticized everyone involved in the whole thing in a, mm -hmm. a scathing 46 page ruling. So, you know, in the end I won mm. the case, but at a huge, huge cost. I mean, it, it was just a devastating 
experience to go through, not only for me, but especially for my father. You know, it, it was a travesty that he did everything he was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And yet, look what happened. And uh, it, it was also a travesty for all family caregivers because my case received a lot of publicity. I mean, it became national news, mm -hmm. news even global news. Mm -hmm. And caregivers were now very fearful because they're looking at what happened to me and they realize that any decisions they make could be looked at through the lens of a prosecutor. And I'm sure the good hospice uh, places ha had an impact on them as well. Um, well. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, just like, you know, if if I'm hearing this or reading this, I'm not going to go ahead and say, let's get hospice. Oh, and yeah. there's, you know, and I'm sure there are hospice services that are high quality and would be helpful. Um, but I can imagine people not wanting to take the risk. I heard from many people who worked in hospice care who were appalled mm -hmm. by what had happened and said that that never would happen in their their hospice right. company and uh yes i'm sure it did have an impact on people looking at them through uh jaded eyes mm -hmm. like okay are you, you now going to act as a, a stool pigeon if you come into my home and you are you going to report me to the police when i'm mm -hmm. just trying to do the best i can so i you know i i don't have any scientific way to measure what my the impact of my case had but i know that um Certainly, in media reports, it, it did have a pretty profound impact. There were dozens of opinion pieces written about my case from, from coast to coast, and not one of them supported the decision to prosecute me. Mm -hmm. And really, I have to say that is almost unprecedented for someone who's been charged with a crime to get that level of public support. So you know how deeply it's, it affected people. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And then it sounds like you got a call from 60 Minutes. Actually, um, producer called me while my case was still being prosecuted, and I was under a gag order, so I, I couldn't say anything. But as soon as my case was dismissed, they got in touch with me, and I, within a few days, I went up to New York, and I was interviewed by Anderson, Anderson Cooper mm -hmm. on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, interestingly, before he interviewed me, he was talking about his own mother, mm -hmm. Gloria Vanderbilt. And yes. She was, I think, 90 at the time. And he told me how she and he had talked about her end of life wishes. And that was a conversation that was important to them. So um, it, it, it seemed to have affected a lot of people in a lot of ways. Hello, Zesties. I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite exercise and stress reduction tools, which I am really relying on during this quarantine. But I've sung its praises for years. The benefits are seemingly endless. Uh, it's great for toning and strengthening muscles. It improves your lymph system, your metabolism. It helps with joint pain and balance. And it's even used by NASA astronauts because 
because it's such an efficient way to exercise. And if you're older or you're worried about your balance, you can order a stabilizer bar to hang on to. I'm talking about my NEDAC Rebounder mini trampoline. I put on my music and I have my own dance party. Because for me, exercise needs to be fun and invigorating. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Now is not the time for the philosophy of no pain, no gain, because we're in enough pain. This is a way to feel good and energized and have fun. It really does help mood as well. And I like that NEDAC is made in the USA and it is really solid. I've had mine for 15 years and it's still in great shape. The NEDAC Rebounder will help us get through this quarantine in better shape mentally and physically. And there's also a model that folds up if space is an issue. One of my clients puts it on her driveway and uses it while she's watching her kids during the quarantine. Anyway, I can't recommend NEDAC Rebounders enough. They are a worthwhile investment in your health and overwhelm overall well-being, especially now. If you are interested in a mini trampoline, please don't buy a cheap one. Those can be actually dangerous, and it is really worth uh, investing in a good quality one. And right now, if you use the coupon code just for Zestful Aging listeners, the code is Zestful, they are going to include a free cover for you. So go to needac.com. It's N-E-E-D-A-K.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at zestfulaging.com. I really am their biggest fan. How was it for you that year after your dad died for you to both deal with the grief of his death, also, I'm sure, having concerns about your mom, and then dealing also with this prosecution? How did you get through that? Well, I got through it. <laughs> it's, I'm still deeply wounded by it. Um. I, I didn't grieve for over two years. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, a coping mechanism when you're traumatized that you just can't, um, you can't even go there. Yeah. And I worried about my mother all the time because this was so difficult for her. She, she couldn't even look at the 60 Minutes interview. It was gut-wrenching for her. And, uh, how do you move on from something like this? I moved on by trying to raise awareness mm -hmm. and hopefully making sure that this never happens to another family or another person, which you is started, why I speak out. Yeah. And you started learning about the legal aspects. Sounds yeah. like you really threw yourself into that part of it. I absolutely threw myself into it. I, I became an investigative journalist <laughs> on mm -hmm. a mission to mm -hmm. figure out how this could have happened. Mm -hmm. what, were the, what were the things that came together that caused this? And, you know, I would say the first thing was the failure of the hospice to adequately treat my father for his end-of-life symptoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second thing was the law because... The statute that allowed them to charge me 
with aiding an, an attempted suicide. It's so vaguely written. And that's true with many, many of these statutes in all 50 states. You know, basically in Pennsylvania, it says that anyone who assists someone in a, a committing a suicide is guilty of a felony of the second degree. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean right. by assisting? Because yeah. that can be interpreted in so many ways. And certainly our, our criminal justice system in the United States is, is a factor too, because we incarcerate more people in our country than any other place in the mm -hmm. world. Yes. So, you know, it, it seems like the answer to everything is to criminalize something. Mm -hmm. And also the politics, again. And I just want to go back to the law for a moment and the politics of this. A big problem with these statutes is they make no distinction between the wish of a dying person mm -hmm. to have some control over how they're going to die and the tragic uh, tragedy of suicide, which is usually a mental health crisis. And most mental health professionals, you're one of them, and most people make a big distinction between the two. And in fact, the American Association of Suicidology does make that distinction. So they say that, you know, someone seeking out physician aid and dying, it is distinct from the mental health crisis of suicide, the, mm -hmm. the crisis that they try so hard to prevent. Mm -hmm. so, and it's, it's so confusing, too, because correct me if I'm wrong, Barbara, but on the West Coast, there's advocates uh, for actually going forward in, in looking at initiatives to help people uh, take their own lives in, in particular situations. And, and in um, Scandinavia, there are also these discussions and initiatives. Am I correct about that? Well, if you're referring to physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying. Yes. Okay, that is uh, legalized or it's, it's mm -hmm. legislated in eight states and in the District of Columbia. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's you can do this. And, of course, physician aid in dying has strict criteria mm -hmm. for eligibility and it has Let's multiple say. safeguards. I mean, yes. you can't walk into a physician and say, give me the prescription. Okay. It doesn't work that way. You have to be someone with a terminal illness. And you know that's a conversation for another day, uh, the whole aid, aid and dying uh, legislation. But it's, it's available in eight states and the, uh, mm -hmm. eight states in the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, in Western United States, also in Colorado and Montana, Hawaii, and in the east in Vermont and New Jersey and the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. And you're in New York. Certainly that, that kind of legislation has de been debated for years. Mm -hmm. And it has come close to passage, but not quite. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I don't like to compare what we're doing in the United States yes. to, to, to the, not Scandinavia, but the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands. Um, they do things differently there and yes. Canada does things differently. Mm -hmm. And so it, but the, the model that's been used in the United States was based on the model that was developed in Oregon and that's worked well. I mean, no one has been subjected to coercion or abuse under that. And I would like to see that legislation passed in all 50 states because mm -hmm. that would prevent uh, equating the wish to die peacefully on your own terms with the wish for suicide, with an act of suicide. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the only states that make that distinction 
are the states that have enacted aid and dine. You know, it seems to me that, you know, as we're talking about this and you're saying, you know, what went wrong and there's many factors, but it seems like one way to maybe simplify this is that they're, the people who had the power in the situation felt that they knew better than your dying father, that they were going to take over and use their philosophies and beliefs and, and, and that to sort of, uh, override your dad's wishes because they had the power and felt like they knew more. I, I don't think there's any question that that was in play there. And it feels like a very paternalistic system. Yeah, it does. And, and I'm based on hierarchy. And what's so insulting is that my father was competent. It wasn't like mm -hmm. he was not capable of making his decisions. Mm -hmm. And they apparently didn't agree with what was important to him. Mm -hmm. And one of the most maddening things happened when I was in one of my court cases, when the prosecutor made this declaration to the judge that my dying father didn't want to get better. And that's how he said it. He didn't want to get better. And I thought to myself, how do you get better from dying? Mm. I mean, he never met my father. He knew nothing mm. about him, knew nothing about how he lived his life, what his values and his hopes were. And he stood there in a courtroom and made that declaration. And mm. I wished I could have stood up and punched him in the mm, face, you know, because sure. it just made me so angry for him to say something that he knew mm -hmm. nothing about. That's right. That's right. And did you have, I'm imagining you testified? No, I didn't. You did not. No. Mm -mm. Was there a question about whether you would be called to testify? If the state had, or if the case had progressed to the trial stage, I absolutely would have testified. Mm -hmm. But... I had a preliminary hearing and they almost never, I mean, on my attorney's advice, I didn't testify. And then my attorney filed a petition for habeas corpus, which is a legal way of challenging the validity, the validity of the prosecution. I see. I see. Okay. And it was after that uh, court hearing on my petition for habeas corpus that the judge uh, put down the ruling that this case had no merit and she dismissed mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you got that news that the the case had been dismissed? Do you remember that that day? It was overwhelming relief and elation. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, what I had been waiting for for so long. It finally happened, and mm -hmm. it, it was a wonderful feeling. Um, it didn't last very long, though. <laughs> And the reason was like two weeks, I, I mean, I was just on cloud nine. It was, it, I was receiving all kinds of congratulations from people, you know, being interviewed here and there. And then two weeks afterwards, it was like the bottom dropped out of my world. And I couldn't figure out why. I was, I was despondent and depressed. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what the heck is wrong with me? I mean, I the outcome I'd been waiting for was so for so long finally happened. Why do I feel like this? And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was going through post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And just the totality of all the stress over the last year um, and 
the sense of betrayal I felt when I finally got my father's hospice records and I saw how poor the quality of care was that he received, knowing that some of the testimony they provided was false. Mm. It, it just, it did a number on my psyche. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to go into therapy because I seemingly was uh, stuck <laughs> and mm-hmm. couldn't seem to move forward with my life. And, uh, and you had also all of that unresolved grief from your dad's death. Yeah. Um, so much layered on top of, uh, you know, one, one another so much. Yeah, well, it's funny because my grief really didn't come to the fore until I, I went to a folk music concert with my husband the following year. And I was listening to a song and, and I don't even remember what it was, but it was about someone who had lost someone and I just completely broke down. Hmm. And it was, it was like a, the moment that, that the floodgates opened. And so then I was dealing with that, you know. Mm-hmm. But it, I will tell you that I don't know that I ever will reconcile this. Um, what happened to him was terrible. And what happened to him was worse than what happened to me. And, you know, it certainly um, shook my confidence in our justice system in a big way. Um, to think that some people thought that this was a useful expenditure of resources, mm-hmm. of public resources, yes. to do this. No. Yes, that somehow this made sense to somebody. It's hard to get inside the head of someone who would think this was a good idea. Well, and I will go back to what I say about the politics. Um, there are people who want to impose their values on others when it comes to certain life transitions, be it birth or death. And uh, as I talk about in the book, the the local county coroner, um, at the time when he uh, leased my father's death certificate, uh, I didn't know this, but he was running for US Congress on a sanctity of life platform. And and it was another, another devastating development in this case, because when he released my father's death certificate, he wrote as the cause of death being a morphine overdose, which it wasn't. My father died Mm. of sepsis as a result of pneumonia and his kidney failure and heart failure. And Uh he also ruled that my father's death was a homicide. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Now, you know, when I first read that, I felt like someone put a shotgun next to my chest and pulled the the trigger. Uh, uh, and that's it's what, just unbelievable. And that's what got me started into doing my own investigation all, on all mm-hmm. this. I had medical experts look at my father's records, his hospital records, his medical records, everything. And one of them was a forensic toxicologist. And they all agreed that he did not die of a morphine overdose. I mean, he took that morphine five days before he died. He even received more morphine the day of his death in the hospital. Mm. And uh, the toxicologist, yeah, the toxicologist said to me, this was not a lethal level of morphine by any means. And, you know, when I found out that the coroner, a few weeks after releasing my father's death certificate, announced publicly he was running for Congress and his, his whole platform was the sanctity of human life. Well, then all the puzzle pieces started falling in place. I see. And I, I figured I was a useful political football for those mm. who had higher aspirations. 
Well, is it hard to return to your hometown, Barbara, given this? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, for for years, just crossing over the county line would bring a flood of uh, terrible feelings to the fore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still go up there, well, before COVID-19 made its appearance, mm-hmm. I was still going up there regularly because my mother lives there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I love my mother. I'm not going to not see her just because she lives in a place where a terrible thing happened. And I will also say that just because some people in that community pursued this wrongful prosecution doesn't mean that everybody agreed with that. And most people didn't agree with that. You Do know? you know the uh, the outcome of the this hospice nurse and supervisor? Uh, I know that the clinical director of the hospice, quote, retired um, mm-hmm. shortly after my preliminary hearing. I don't know what happened to the, the hospice supervisor or the particular nurse. I know that the police officer who arrested me also, quote, retired mm-hmm. after, shortly after my case was dismissed. Uh, the coroner did not get elected to Congress, but he's still the county coroner. And, um, the person responsible for my prosecution, who happened to be the Pennsylvania Attorney General, Kathleen Kane, herself was prosecuted on charges and ended up going to jail in a case unrelated to mine. On what charges? Oh, she was prosecuted for lying to a grand jury, uh, and it had to do with a, a, a political prosecution in Philadelphia for some people who held elected office in Philadelphia. It was a rather long involved thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, uh, I guess politics is dirty in, in certain offices and uh, she did some things she, she shouldn't had have her done. Hands. Yep. Oh, and wow. she got caught and she actually s- served, I think eight months in jail. So the person who prosecuted me ended up <laughs> mm, that must have been That must've been sweet. I would say bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a time after, after I did traveled the country and did my end of life advocacy, I also did some criminal justice advocacy. Something that means a lot to me because of the experience I had, and I, I got a paralegal certificate and I did an internship with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, and then I worked for over a year with the public defender's office in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Montgomery County uh, is adjacent to Philadelphia. And uh, I would go into the local jail and interview our indigent clients. And it was quite an eye-opener. I mean, I I felt that I was treated unfairly in our criminal justice system. And it's... You're a white woman (laughs) with resources. Yes. And jails are filled with poor people Mm -hmm. who have no resources. And many of them have mental health problems Mm -hmm. and addiction problems that are untreated. And they end up in jails on with cash bails assessed that they can't possibly, mm-hmm. possibly meet. So, you know, I, I worked in that job for over a year. But it, ironically, that's the very jail where Kathleen Kane had to serve her time, the, the former attorney general who prosecuted me. It's It, it was quite a, a karma event. Mm, I, <laughs> so, I would say so. I, I couldn't make this stuff up. It actually <laughs> happened. But uh, ah, wow. And so you were you writing your book during this time? Yeah, 
I was. Mm-hmm. It, was that a cathartic experience or how, how did that go for you? I often get asked that question mm-hmm. and I have to be honest and say, no, it wasn't cathartic. It was a painful thing to do. It took me four years to write it. And I had to stop many, many times because when you're writing things down, you're reliving it in a way that's because you're writing details and uh, you're reliving it in a way that's so vivid. Re-experiencing it. Yes. And so, no, it wasn't cathartic, but this was a goal of mine because I feel compelled and I felt compelled that I had to get this information out to people so that no one ever has to experience something mm-hmm. like this again. And the best way to arm yourself is to arm yourself with information. And I hope that I've achieved that, achieved that in my book. That, that's my goal. So it, it wasn't cathartic, but it was something that I felt I needed to do. And what are you doing with your time now? Well, at the moment, I've taken a pause in my... Uh, paid professional life. And I I had a a lot of trouble juggling full-time work with the needs of my mother. I also have a a younger sister who's severely disabled. And uh, it was, as many people, boomers know, it's really hard to juggle all those different hats and Mm -hmm. keep all the balls Mm -hmm. in the air. Yes. So um, at the time I took my pause, I guess it was a fortuitous uh, time to, to bow out because then a month later, here we are in the age of COVID-19, and I wouldn't be working anyway. So um, I don't know. I don't know what I'll be doing going forward, but I I do want to continue to advocate for improved end-of-life care Mm -hmm. and for increased choices for people at the end of life, and I want to advocate for a fair criminal justice system. So all those are important to me, and I plan to continue to do that. That sounds like a very, very worthy goal, Barbara. Where can people find out more about you and your story and your book? Well, I have a website. It's barbaramancinistory.com. So people can check that out. Um, I have more information on the website and I have resources listed there too that are just Mm -hmm. clickable. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wrote the book, as I told you, it's called Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath. It was published by Sunbury Press. It's available from the publisher and from all the usual places online, Amazon, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. even independent um, bookstores, you can order it through that. And, uh, you know, I go, I take a deep dive into end of life care, in specifically to hospice care, into our societal feelings about dying, how dying has changed, and also about criminal justice issues. And I think people will find it a useful resource. Yes, indeed. I I have read it and I totally agree with you. It's a very different kind of book and I think very important. Barbara, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and and helping us understand this this really painful and, and unbelievable situation that you've had to navigate and um, and I also really appreciate you 
taking from that and then reaching out and, and helping others who are less fortunate. Well, I appreciate you having me on your podcast today, Nicole, and I thank you for that. What a moving story and a cautionary tale with Barbara. And she really highlights how important it is to get recommendations if you're going to hire hospice or some other kind of service for a loved one who is ill and in the last stages. She really recommends that you interview providers. You can Google your local uh, hospice to see what people have said, but most important word of mouth and getting sort of the backstory on, on how they operate. And I think also understanding the political climate in the county uh, where your loved one lives very important because people have very different ideas about uh, who should make decisions uh, when people are uh, ill and dying. What was really touching to me is how Barbara used this traumatic experience to then discover and to learn more about the criminal justice system and how unfair it is. And then, of course, she went to work at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project as a volunteer and learned even more. So she turned this into a way to advocate for fairness and um, to teach people how to avoid uh, an experience uh, like she did. And you know that this is the one of the secrets, of course, to aging zestfully is that you take a situation that's extremely difficult and we all have them and then you learn from that and then perhaps you can help others and leave a legacy. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. 
We all need help with our anxiety. So being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.